0: The court of appeals for the Federal Circuit is now open and in session. God
1: save the United States and its Honorable Court. Please be seated. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We have five cases on the calendar this morning. Two from the PTAB, two from the Veterans Court, and one from the District Court. One of the Veterans Cases is being submitted on the briefs and not argued. First case is 2020, eleven eighty four, Moderna versus Arbutus. Uh, Ms. Wigmore. I don't want to tell you how to argue your case, but I assume you'll begin with standing. What you're doing in front of us right now.
0: (laughs) Good morning, Your Honor. And may it please the court. My name is Amy Wagmore, and together with my colleague, Katherine Kikefer, I represent the appellant and cross-appellee Moderna TX, Inc. This case involves an inter partes review proceeding addressing our Buddhist's 435 patent on lipid formulations for nucleic acid delivery. Now there are a number of legal errors that infected that proceeding, but um, given the court's statement, I will begin with the issue of standing. Moderna had and continues to have standing to pursue this appeal. At the outset, when this appeal was filed in November of 2019, there was a series of sublicenses that Moderna had from Acuitas, which had sublicensed these patents, including the 435, um, from from Arbutus's predecessor. Those sublicenses applied to four different targets. And at the time that the appeal was filed, there was active development going on with respect to one of those targets, RSB. Now, this court has recognized that standing can be established in a number of ways. One of those ways, of course, is the concrete activity leading to a possible infringement suit. That was not the basis for standing at the time this appeal was filed. The basis was contractual rights. That are affected by a determination of patent validity and the JTEC case by this court recognizes that basis for standing. As of November 19, 2019, Moderna had these sublicenses in place and it had already paid milestone payments under the licenses. And how, had, how
2: much time had uh, my recollection is there? It had been about five years since a milestone payment had been made, right?
0: The, it had been several years since the original milestone payments had been made, but at the but t- any
2: milestone payments, the right. last milestone payment that was made prior to the filing of the complaint was when?
0: I don't have that specific date, but it is correct that it was not within a year of the appeal being filed. That said, there was an active development program with a third party for this RSV target. And the license was very much still in place. All 4 sublicenses were still in place. These programs had not been abandoned.
1: Well, if you're licensed, what's the threat of infringement?
0: There does not need to be a threat of infringement under this court's precedent in the JTEC case. There needs to be contractual rights that are implicated by patent validity. And the issue here was there were potential future milestone and other royalty payment obligations in connection with those programs the four viral targets that had been sublicensed in addition Moderna had the right to sublicense these programs to third parties and the the impact of having to pay these royalty obligations was something that would impact their ability to sublicense uh, them of the colleges. problem
3: is that is they is sort of the weak evidence that you submitted with respect to the likelihood of these payments being affected so there is, you know, you've got testimony that says if and when there's a phase two clinical trial, but no testimony that says we're anticipating it within some period of time, we're working toward that. Um, you And there's in this case, there are multiple patents, and, and there's nothing that says this particular patent what, is what was driving the milestone payments. And so how do you fill that gap?
0: Your Honor, this is a case that is very much distinguishable from the Apple versus Qualcomm case, which was cited by Arbutus in their briefing. In that case, Apple had attempted to argue standing based on the possibility of some future royalty payment. They had a license, but they had settled two infringement cases with a global settlement. They also submitted what the court referred to as an incredibly sparse declaration, and the only issue there was whether within six or eight years after this license agreement settling all the infringement litigation expired, could there be potentially some financial obligation. This case is much different. There's a detailed set of declarations that were submitted by Sean Ryan, Vice President and General Counsel of Moderna.
2: Can I I interrupt you for a minute? I think the problem here is immediacy. How do you show the immediacy specifically? Just forget about the other cases for a minute.
0: With respect to standing in IPR proceedings, it is true that the injury, in fact, requirement remains. But because there's a statutory right to appeal under 35 U.S.C. uh, 141C, the requirements for immediacy or traceability and redressability are more relaxed in this context due to the statutory ability to appeal. And in this case, there was an ongoing development program at the time the appeal was filed with another party, to the extent that development program led to a phase two uh, trial, there would be further obligations owed. That is concrete, and that is the type of activity the court has recognized It can be current or even future activity that can implicate standing. Well, I, I
3: understand, you know, that there was probably some concerns about that, confidentiality and not giving too much information, but my concern is still with the too little information. You said there's a detailed affidavit, but it's pretty vague.
0: The affidavit describes the existence of this development program. The development program, if successful, would have led to further royalty payments. That was a situation in November of 2019 when this appeal was filed, now the situation has evolved, and it's this court's obligation not just to look at standing at the time the appeal is filed, but whether there's an ongoing live case or controversy. And it is true that facts have evolved. Well, the you still have filed. to have
3: standing as of the time the case is filed. Absolutely. So, so, to to what what extent do you believe there's authority for the proposition that subsequent events can can reflect on the nature of standing when it's filed?
0: The Initial existence of the sublicense is sufficient. It was a concrete program. There was a concrete development effort undergoing at, being undergone at least with respect to RSVP, RSV and that was something that was actually actively being worked on. That is a concrete plan that the company had at the time and that development program was subject to royalty payments. In addition, there is this ability to sublicense which was burdened as set forth in the Ryan declaration by these royalty payments. Now, Your now, Honor, can asked I
2: interrupt you for a minute? So so do I understand you to be saying that the initial basis for standing would be based on those plans that would, uh, and the license, the plans to develop something? Maybe that kind of fell to the wayside at some point, but that at least provided the initial basis for standing, and then at some point it, it evolved, um, I guess, as you, uh, your client created the vaccine. It
0: evolved to a
2: different basis
0: for standing. That, I wouldn't say a different basis for standing. I would okay. say that that evolution keeps this controversy alive. Standing is assessed at the time the appeal is filed, and at that time there was this active program under the sublicense that had a royalty burden. Over time, as set forth in our supplemental declaration, that particular RSV program was not pursued. The sublicense is still in place. There's potential future development. But that particular program, which is very concrete at the time the appeal was filed, did change. Now, that said, at the same time, the COVID vaccine was developed and ultimately, you know, delivered to the market and commercialized. And
3: but those that, are all after the date. That activity is after the date on which the appeal was filed.
0: That is correct. And in the, the Momenta case, this court recognized that it need not only look at standing at the time the appeal was filed, which here we're relying on the license and the active development program for standing as of November 2019, but we still need to evaluate whether there's a lot of controversy moving forward as the appeal is still pending. And there we do have this of mm-hmm. vaccine. If you're
1: concerned about royalty obligations, financial burdens under a license that you don't need, uh, you could have terminated the license, couldn't you?
0: There are two different situations here. With respect to the four targets of the sublicense. it's not disputed that those targets, as they were being developed at the time, were practicing the patents at issue. So there would have been a royalty burden had those patents not been invalidated, and that's what Mr. Ryan's declaration makes clear. As to the COVID vaccine, certainly is a case that Moderna does not – concede any infringement. And the case law makes clear that for standing based on potential litigation, you need not concede infringement, nor need there be a specific threat of an infringement case. There needs to be concrete plans and activity that could lead to a possible infringement action.
3: But it can't be so remote. I mean, you can't say that we had a license to to do a bicycle and then we later did a car, and so therefore we're concerned about an infringement claim. So we I mean, that that is part of your problem. You're not arguing that the RSV program that you said was live somehow morphed into where we are now. You're arguing that they are completely separate and that the patents don't cover what's going on now. And so that that's part of the problem. I understand what you're saying, but I, I think you're taking it too far.
0: Now in the Momenta case, this court recognized that The basis for standing and case or controversy are not necessarily coextensive. The court recognized that situations evolve even after appeals are filed. There's no question at the time this appeal was filed, there was an active licensing program that had royalty implications. Since that time, it's been a couple of years, there has been some change to that program, that license is still in place, but there's no more development of that one particular RSV vaccine under that license. But there has been this change in the circumstances where the COVID vaccine, COVID didn't even exist at the time this appeal was filed, as far as anyone knew. Um, And at that time, we were not relying on the risk of infringement. But But, now it's a concrete... But you really
3: only discussed those activities in connection with the other appeal, right? There's nothing in this first appeal where I see that discussion of the development of the COVID vaccine as something you were relying upon.
0: We did supplement the record, Your Honor. It's docket number, I think it's 118, where we put in the Ryan declaration that was filed in the 069 appeal. We put it into this appeal, not only to advise the court of this ongoing live controversy, but also to advise the court that the development program we had been discussing in the original declaration at the time of the appeal being filed that that program had changed. and so do you want to
1: spend a few minutes on, <clears throat> on the merits? Absolutely. And we'll make sure you get some rebuttal time.
0: Okay, thank you. So, <clears throat> in terms of the merits, there's a fundamental legal flaw of the IPR decision, and that is the court failed to apply the proper framework and shift the burden of production to Arbutus. There are overlapping ranges in the prior art that the board failed to recognize. In addition, the board failed to adequately explain its decision. It had a little over two pages of a 51-page opinion addressing the issue of obviousness. It did not properly analyze this legal framework or apply it, nor did it adequately explain its decision. Now, in terms of the ranges that were disclosed in the prior art, these patents, this 435 patent addresses a, a Composition containing four categories of lipids, conjugated lipids, cationic lipids, um, and two non-cationic lipids, cholesterol and phospholipid. Ranges of the three are categories. You, are you,
2: just to make sure I'm being clear here, are you addressing primarily the claims other than Claim 7 and Claim 8?
0: We are addressing all of the claims because the error was fundamental. When the court turned from anticipation, which it found for some of the claims, to obviousness, with respect to all the claims it was analyzing for obviousness that had not been anticipated, it failed to apply this burden-shifting framework. And these ranges... And there are some
2: claims that are, um, if I remember correctly, there are some claims that don't have um, the phospholipid in them, right?
0: They have cholesterol, and the court made the same error with respect to cholesterol. In fact, even greater error, because it, it said in its opinion that the cholesterol range was not disclosed when even Arbutus concedes that the prior art discloses a 20 to 45% range of cholesterol. So is, it, which is so is it
3: your view that what we should do if we reach the merits is not reverse, but to, to vacate and remand so that the burden shifting uh, can apply and the board can consider it under that standard?
0: That's correct. It was a fundamental error not to shift the burden and to impose upon Moderna the obligation to prove motivation to optimize. Motivation to optimize is presumed when there's an overlapping range, and based on the description we provided in our brief, there was a clear overlap. That overlapping range need not be stated in hake verba or verbatim in the prior art. Here, it was with respect to three of the four lipids at issue. Those ranges were explicitly described and there can be no question they overlap with what's in the claim. And so the, in the case law on this says it can be either
2: overlapping or encompassed. That, that is, the prior ranges can either overlap with the claim range or encompass the claim range. That's you know, correct. The
0: presumption applies. Okay. All you need is a slight overlap. The enray Peterson case makes that clear as do other cases. This case is squarely on point with the DuPont case that this court decided. It was an, also an IPR. Uh, where a non-obviousness finding was reversed. Here, there are multiple variables, but the DuPont case recognized that those can form the basis of an overlapping range presumption. The fundamental error here... Was
3: Was there anything in the record, I mean, putting aside whether they should have formally shifted the burden, is there anything in the record that would indicate that the narrower range or the specific range was somehow surprising or somehow different from what the prior art showed?
0: The basis for their patent, they allege, is this amount of cationic lipid above 50%, but the prior art, including the 554 patent and the 554 publication and the 189 publication, both expressly disclose a cationic lipid range of up to 60%. So that's the fundamental issue here. 60% cationic lipid is in the prior art, and so it cannot be the basis for distinguishing this patent from the prior art.
1: Counsel, let's hear from the other side. And we'll give you three minutes for a bottle. Mr. Burl.
4: Good morning, Your Honors. David Burl for Arbutus. I'll start, uh, where my opponent started with regard to the issue of standing. And what's missing here are multiple things. First, any notion of immediacy is entirely absent from the evidence that Moderna has presented to this court. It is speculative. And it, today we've heard for the first time that they admit that this RSV vaccine program, which was the basis for their standing as of notice of appeal, November 2019 has been abandoned. So they've now shifted. But, well, it but we need to look
3: at, at November 2019. Indeed. So why is the is the fact that it was at least ongoing at that point and there was an intention to to move forward with it at that point. Why isn't that enough?
4: Here's what's missing. And the key cases here are the Samsung case, in which multiple patents were licensed and standing was found, and the Apple versus Qualcomm case, where multiple patents were licensed and standing was not found. And the difference is crucial here. In Samsung, this court found that the invalidation of the patent at issue in that case would have changed the royalty obligation because of the way the patent pool worked. If you eliminate one patent, more money would be paid on other patents, so Samsung would have profited. That was missing in Apple versus Qualcomm, where this court found that Apple presented no evidence that the invalidation of the particular patents it was challenging would change its royalty obligations. That evidence is missing here too. If you look at Mr. Ryan's declaration, he addresses this at A5745 through 46, and he acknowledges that Moderna here has licensed numerous patents, not just the 435 and 069, numerous patents. Those patents are found at exhibit D to his declaration at A5828 through 69. It's actually in the other appendix because they supplemented it. And what you see there are 40 pages of patents. These are two of them only one at issue in this appeal. Well, patent, patent
3: portfolio licensing is pretty normal. So assuming that patent portfolio license is normal, can't a clinical trial or ultimately a product read on a number of patents in a portfolio?
4: It could, but the crucial question under the Apple Qualcomm case is whether the requested relief, here the invalidation of the 435 patent, would affect the payment obligation for Moderna, and there's no evidence from Mr. Ryan that it would. There's no evidence, unlike unlike the uh, the Samsung case, that says if the 435 patent is invalidated and we had continued this RSV program, we would have owed Arbutus less money.
3: Well, we've, we've said you don't have to admit infringement in order to establish standards.
4: Th- that's not a question of, of admitting infringement. It's a question of whether the requested relief would affect their payments under the license. So whether they infringe or not, Let's assume for a moment that they would. Best case scenario for their standing case. There's no evidence that if you take out the 435 patent that they owe one red cent less if they would have progressed their RSV program. Because they have to pay on all of the patents, so the elimination of one or two of them doesn't change their royalty obligation. They have to show evidence under the Apple Qualcomm case that it does. I
2: think the point of your argument is that that makes it less concrete, less likely to occur, um, combined with the fact that it was also there had been a lot of times in saying milestone payments had been made anyway, so it was a little bit less concrete that they would even – this product would come to fruition and they would have to pay any milestone
4: payments. Absolutely. And even if they did have to pay milestones, which, again, is not concrete and speculative – there 's no evidence that the request of relief would have redressed in any way their obligations. They would have paid exactly the same amount under the evidence that they have advanced. And the Apple Qualcomm case says this defeats injury in fact, under the metamune analysis. And so you can 't have a situation where you have a bunch of licenses that, that are to 40 pages of licenses without forty pages of patents, without any evidence. And they have an absence of proof here. You can read the Ryan Declaration front to back. You won't see any evidence that the invalidation of the 435 patent, or for that matter, the 069 patent in the next case, affects their payment obligations. And the Apple Qualcomm case said that are is you necessary. Saying that,
3: that, are you saying that they need, where you have those multiple patents, that they w- essentially would need to establish the, that infringement would occur based on the ongoing program... Or are you saying they need to establish that not only would infringement likely occur, but that it wouldn't occur with respect to the other patents?
4: They, they, that would be one way of solving the Apple versus Qualcomm problem. If they if they had advanced that sort of evidence that said we don't infringe the other forty pages of patents, so therefore invalidation of the four three five would mean we don't have to pay any royalties if we progress this RSV vaccine. That sort of evidence would have been sufficient under Apple Qualcomm. They don't say that. What what Moderna says in reply, they cite the Shen Yang case for the proposition that eliminating the 435 would eliminate a major obstacle for them, consistent with with their payment obligations. But that was addressed also in the Apple versus Qualcomm case. Footnote 4 of that case says that Apple doesn't present... Any evidence as to why invalidation of this one patent would present a, would, would remove a major obstacle. For example, they could have said if the 435 patent is invalidated, that would mean all of these other patents also would be invalid, so we wouldn't have to pay, or we don't infringe the other patents, so that's really the major obstacle. But they have no evidence of any of that. And so just like Apple Qualcomm, which I would submit is on all fours with this case with respect to the pool of patents and the absence of evidence that the payment obligations would be affected by the requested relief, I would say respectfully resolves the standing issue here.
3: Isn't it a bit of a catch-22, though? I mean, you have to basically say that that you're liable in order to have standing?
4: No, you, you could have said exactly what what Your Honor suggested. that They could have said, we challenge the 435 patent. We don't infringe the other 39 pages of patents. So therefore, invalidation of the 435 patent would remove any payment obligations, even if we did infringe. We agree. They don't have to admit infringement, but they do have to show some imminent threat here of having to pay their their royalty uh, for their activities. They admit that they had no threat when they filed this notice of appeal with respect to COVID. They admit that at some point, after their last payment obligation, which was back in 2016, was made, that they abandoned their RSV program that's relevant to this patent. We have no evidence of when that happened versus when their COVID vaccine came into being and recreated in their mind that imminent threat. There's no timeline that indicates that at all times they had an imminent threat of suit and that they had standing. They have no evidence of that. They're just saying, well, at some point the RSV program went away. And at some point, the COVID vaccine program came up, so we probably had standing somewhere in that. And it's good enough. What do you make work. of
3: the argument? Uh, and this is, goes to the question of the supplemental authority that 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 uh, post-filing activities are relevant. I, I thought post-filing activities are relevant not because they help to establish standing, but because even with standing, it, it, there might not be any case of controversy.
4: Absolutely, and, and I agree with your honor's interpretation. It is a fundamental tenet of standing and, frankly, jurisdictional and Article three case law that at all points, at every point, including the filing of the Notice of Appeal and all points thereafter, standing must be present. Any gap, also, one minute. counsel do you want
1: to address the merits?
4: Uh, happy to address the merits, Your Honor. <laughs> this is a case in which the Board made numerous factual findings that are explicitly relevant under this Court's range case law that, that resolve this case conclusively. For example, the board found that the various components disclosed in the prior art interrelate with each other in an unpredictable way. That is explicitly relevant under this court's Applied Materials case, under this court's case law, for example, in the Horizon case where the court said it's important to distinguish in these cases between systems like the one in DuPont, like the one in Applied Materials. Why
2: isn't that something that would be considered after the presumptions applied? Well, it it seems to me that once you have a prior reference that discloses the mold percentages for the ingredients in the claim, that at that point the presumption applies and there should be some shifting. That seems to be the problem here.
4: Well, I, yeah, so, so let me address that in two ways. First, the Horizon case does not stand for that proposition. In that case, where the various components interacted unpredictably with each other, as the board found here in an unchallenged factual finding, no presumption was applied by the district court. None. And this court affirmed that finding. And Moderna's only response to that is that Horizon isn't a range case and somehow the active ingredient was not disclosed in the prior art as a range. That's not true. If you look at the district court case at Star 5, it makes clear that the Kazai reference disclosed an overlapping range of diclofenac sodium, the accurate even,
2: even if that's true, there's plenty of other cases that take a different approach. Well, n-
4: none of them suggest that in a situation where the various components of the prior art interact unpredictably with each other, a presumption is invoked. And I would suggest the applied materials case suggests exactly the opposite. So, are you
3: saying opinion. we should say that, that even though there is a clear overlap in the ranges, that... Just because it, there appears to be in, in interaction between the ingredients that we we don't we ignore those overlaps so
4: so first of all, I don't think there's a clear disclosure of an overlap okay. there's no disclosure okay.
3: of how, how can how can um, twenty to forty five percent not overlap at least somewhat with 30 to 40
4: percent. It, it does, of course, but there's no disclosure of a phospholipid range anywhere in the prior art record. that's not so, in all the claims. No, that's, that's in claim seven of the, Okay, so uh, of set claim seven clients.
2: aside. If,
4: if we set claim seven, if we set claim seven aside, what I would observe, Your Honor, is that the range case law, whether it's DuPont or Applied Materials or any of the others, does not exist Separate and apart from this court's obviousness jurisprudence and the KSR obviousness jurisprudence, they're trying to get at the same thing and they can't be applied in a way that is abjectly defying KSR and all of the principles of obviousness. To take one example, in the, in the DuPont case as well as the Peterson case that they cite, the court observed that the issue here is do we have routine experimentation which leads to obviousness because you experiment routinely within the ranges? Or do we have non-obvious invention? That's the crucial distinction here. And the court said the exact same thing in the Genetics Institute case. It's getting at the same thing as KSR in all of the obviousness cases. It's not some separate doctrine that can exist hermetically sealed from everything else in Section 103. And here, the board found repeatedly, in an unchallenged factual finding, that it would not be routine experimentation, that it would be difficult experimentation. Their own expert agrees that it would be difficult experimentation. So which side of the ledger are we on? Routine experimentation, as in DuPont, as in Peterson, or not routine experimentation, as in Genetics Institute and Horizon. The board answered that question repeatedly <clears throat> and no, said, so
1: "Do you want to deal with the claim one?"
4: Sure, I think claim one is exactly the same principle. The board found that there would not have, that those ranges would not have been achieved by routine experimentation, therefore precluding any finding of obviousness. There is no finding in any of the range cases, whether it's Stefan, DuPont, Peterson, or any of the others, that where you have non-routine... Cases
1: aside, the L054 formulation is right within the claim range. Uh, of Claim 1.
4: Sure. I'm sorry. I might have misunderstood Your Honor's question. Your Honor's asking about anticipation of Claim 1 rather than the obviousness issue, and I'll, I apologize. Your Honor, I didn't, I didn't understand your question, and I'd, I'd happily move to anticipation. The problem with Moderna's anticipation argument and the Board's finding is that it has the right numbers, but it's about the wrong thing. The LO54 formulation provides the numbers for the inputs into the formulation, not the outputs, and Moderna admits that. At A4651, they say that those are the inputs, and their expert admits at 5242 through 5244 that the inputs and the outputs are not the same. They change, and our expert provides a careful explanation of why that is as a result of the detergent process used in the 554. Doctor, Our expert explains at A4924 through 25 that it removes some of the cholesterol lipid, and so the amount of conjugated lipid increases. It goes up, he explained, there and in his deposition. A lot of this is
3: interesting, but the problem is it's not in the claims.
4: Well, it, it is in the claims. The claims were construed, and everyone agrees that they address the final formulation percentages. Moderna agrees with that. And we agree with that, too. This claim is directed to a particle, a final particle, not the inputs of what you put in before you manufacture the particle. So that is in the claim. And the prior art is addressing something different. The prior art is addressing what you put in, not what you get out. And Moderna knows that it has a problem here. They don't try to defend the proposition that there's no difference between inputs and outputs. They... Respectfully try to manufacture a finding from the board that doesn't exist. That somehow the inputs are indicative of the outputs. That's, that's their response. And they cite to A20 and 21 of the board's opinion. That finding but is not there. dare
3: Moderna rely on the entirety of the 554 publication and not just on the L054 formulation? It was the board
4: found their argument with respect to the rest of the 554 unpersuasive? And I don't think that's being refuted here on appeal, that the ranges are not enough to anticipate the claims. So the board relied only on that particular example, the L054 example, as being anticipatory.
3: Well, isn't that an overly narrow view of the prior art?
4: Well, the the board addressed the rest of the 554. It addressed the ranges. It explained that the ranges we're not the sort of ranges that can anticipate the claim and moderna doesn't argue otherwise it doesn't quibble with the board's rejection of their anticipation argument on that basis it simply tries to defend the anticipation argument on the basis of the LO54 formulation but again that addressed the wrong thing everyone agrees that the LO54 is about the inputs not the outputs and there's a difference and the conjugated lipid goes up. And contrary to what Moderna said, our expert did not say otherwise. His testimony is at A44, 47 through 50. He never said, he never said that there would be particles that have less than 2% conjugated lipid. They try to suggest that he did, but if you read the testimony, he didn't say that. On the contrary, he said the amount of conjugated lipid will go up. And it's 2% already in the L054 example. And throat throat throat
1: our claim ends. Throat> you. <coughs> uh. Consume your time, but we'll give you two minutes to rebuttal on the cross-appeal if there's something to rebut.
4: I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Your Honor.
1: Well, we're giving it three minutes. Thank you, Your three Honor. <clears throat>
0: in terms of anticipation, there was a factual finding by the board that should be reviewed under substantial evidence standard that lo 5 species, there's no dispute that it contains all the components that can be found in the claimed ranges. The only dispute is about whether you can take the formulation molar concentrations to mean what's in the... Claims. And that's exactly what Arbutus did in both the 554 publication and in the 435 patent. They described the formulation and the molar concentrations, and they claimed them. There's absolutely no evidence in the 435 patent, the patent here at issue, of what the amount would be in the composition, if different. And- do, you,
2: do you support the board's finding that um, when you uh make the particle at least some will fall within the claim ranges, even if some are outside, and so therefore there's anticipation?
0: That's certainly a supportable finding, and and I think what the board found is there's no evidence to the contrary. There's no evidence that anything would be outside the range other than pure speculation, in this case, by their expert, Dr. Thompson. That was a credibility (laughs) finding. He alleged but did not support that the numbers would be different in the final Composition. And importantly, the disclosure of the 435 patent, all it has is the formulation concentration. It contains no information about any different, if they would be different, concentrations in the final Mm -hmm. composition. So it's exactly the same disclosure in both the 554 publication and in the patent at issue here. And this is a factual finding that is entitled to deference. In terms of standing, I just want to point out paragraph eight of Mr. Ryan's declaration. Uh that can be found in the appendix at page the six three nine seven and nine eight. In that paragraph, unlike in the Apple case, he expressly said that the financial there would be financial implications with respect to the four three five patent if this patent were if this patent were invalidated. So what's, the, what's the site? It's six three nine seven and six three nine eight. That's paragraph eight of the Ryan Declaration. So there's a lot more evidence in this record than in the Apple case. And from a practical standpoint, it cannot be the case that if you have a portfolio, you can never appeal an IPR because you have to challenge the patent sequentially. That's going on here. We have a separate appeal we're about to argue on the 069. We can't take them all together in the same appeal. The key is to remove an obstacle. And that's what this IPR is designed to Is there be. any
3: evidence that the, that the 435 relates in any way to the vaccine efforts?
0: There are broad statements by Moderna, by, by Arbutus, that are in the record in the appendix that they think they cover the whole landscape of lipid nanoparticles. Those broad which, statements
3: being the in the press articles.
0: Yes, and, and these are not just press articles; these are quotes from Arbutus's CEO, um, and and they certainly have not. But it wasn't
3: deposition testimony or anything. It's just generally saying, "I've got a lot of." That's
0: no, no deposition testimony. This was not. You know, an issue. And the there, t- is
3: there a reference in that specifically to the, the 435?
0: Not with respect to the vaccine specifically. They have not made a specific threat, nor need they under the case law. There needs to be a risk of possible infringement based on Moderna's activities. And there clearly is, because the vaccine is being widely distributed. There has been no covenant not to sue. That's to set forth in the Ryan Declaration. And there have been broader discussions between Moderna and Arbutus about a broader license.
2: And this will all come up, up in the next case, right? This will come up again.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Burrow, you do have a little time on the cross appeal.
4: Thank you, Your Honor. My opponent referred to a factual finding by the board that did not find persuasive our expert's testimony that all of the particles would fall outside the ranges. Respectfully, the board got it wrong. That has it backwards. We don't have to come forward with evidence of non-anticipation and of non-inherency in order to prevail. The burden falls on Moderna and remains with Moderna the whole time. The board cited not a shred of evidence in the record that the amounts would be the same. And on the contrary, their expert admitted that they wouldn't be. At A5242 through 5244, he says it can change during manufacture. So even if the board rejected our expert's testimony as non-persuasive for whatever reason, that would leave an absence of proof.
2: What about the patent itself? Why doesn't the patent itself provide some proof of what the board is asserting based on the fact that the specification, written description, that is, refers to the formulation percentages and the claims refer to the particle percentages? Why would someone think they'd be different based on the fact that the particle percentages aren't disclosed in the
4: So our expert addresses that question in explaining that the 554 manufacturing process is a particular process that uses detergent that would change substantially the lipid percentage. I understand oh, what are is-
2: saying, but what about what do we do with the board finding that not credible or not thinking that it makes sense technically? based on the reading of the specification. Well, what did we do with that? Based on the reading of our
4: specification, mm-hmm. and the board did rely on our specification in suggesting that that's what we did too. Um, the problem with that evidence is that our process is different. There was no finding that in our process you would have substantial changes. We had a very different process in our specification than the 554 manufacturing process in its specification. So the evidence, and this is the only evidence, it's not as if there's evidence that Moderna brought forward that says, It doesn't change. It's all the same. Moderna agrees that the percentages change when you use the 554 process. So there can be no credibility determination that sort of rejects all that evidence. That's the only evidence there was. Their expert didn't dispute it. Our specification, which, of course, is not prior art and is an entirely different matter, doesn't have the same manufacturing process. It has an entirely different manufacturing process. No detergent. It doesn't lose all that phospholipid, thereby increasing – or sorry – Cholesterol, thereby increasing the other components, and most importantly here, for present you, purposes, counsel. the conjugated lipid.
1: Thank you. The case Thank you very much. Submitted, <clears throat> and when Ms.
3: Wigmore.